Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. Here's what it describes about this Word, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. Now, when, I, when it says John there, John is not talking in third person. Not, John is not talking about himself like John testified. John, myself, I testified. No, that's not what he's saying. He's actually talking about John the Baptist. So real quick teaching point while we're reading the scripture, don't get John the beloved confused with John the Baptist. All right? All right, you might have thought this was John the Baptist. No, John the Baptist is a, a whole different person. This John is one of Jesus' disciples. This John wrote this gospel, and if you turn all the way to the back of your Bible, there's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. This is the same John that wrote the gospel, John, not to be confused with John the Baptist. Y'all all right? All right, so he's talking about a different John, all right? He's talking about John the Baptist here when he says, John testified. Let's carry on, verse 15. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me. Why? Because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side, he has revealed him. He has revealed him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this just awesome, amazing opportunity to worship you to study your word together, Lord, to grow in our faith together, Lord. I just pray that your will be done this morning. I pray that ultimately we would see Christ Jesus and as we study. We would see him for who he is. Um, God, I also pray just, just for the people who are in the room today who have the spirit of going through the motions or the spirit of apathy. Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, some way, somehow, you break through. God, I pray you break down every wall, every resistance, every bit of stuckness that our people are going through this morning. Father, I pray that you would shine your light in their darkness, Father. And so, Lord, I just thank you for all the walls that you're going to break down today, Lord. I thank you, Father, for moving people out of apathy into passion for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we, after today's message and after today's experience, would now know that we are called not to live for ourselves, but live for the one who created us. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time today. I pray that we are not just observers today, but that we participate fully in what you have to say and what you're doing through us today. And so, Lord, we thank you. We give you honor. We give you praise. We give you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. My sermon title this morning is Grace Upon Grace. Grace Upon Grace. I'm going to take my sermon title straight out of verse 16 because my goal by the end of this message is for you to understand the grace of God that much more than you already do. 
And so when we think about the idea of grace, here's what I want to tell you about grace. God has more grace than you have sin. God has more grace than you have brokenness. God has more grace than you have impatience. God has more grace than you have disappointment. God has more grace than you have a broken heart. God has more grace than you have pain. God has more grace than you have disappointment. God has more grace than you have weakness. And so we think about the grace of God. The grace of God is his undeserved, unmerited favor that he has poured out on undeserved sinners and he has offered them the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. But that is not just what grace is. Grace is more than just sin management. Grace is also the power and the ability that God has given us to overcome sin God has given us all of this grace for our benefit and so when I say it's grace upon grace what that means is this that God's grace never runs out if ever you need grace for anything in your life God has an endless supply that will never run out so God has grace upon grace. If you feel too weak, God has grace. If you feel like you can't wait any longer, God has grace. If you feel like your pain is too deep and you can't take it anymore, I got good news because of Jesus. God has grace upon grace that never runs out. It is an endless supply of grace. That, that, that's good news for us. And so in order for us to understand grace in its totality, John wants to tell us the story of grace. But in order to tell the story of grace in its completeness and its totality, John does something very different than the other gospel writers. John starts off his story with a prologue, with something called a prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 in your Bible is called and referred to as a prologue. It is a prologue, and a prologue is typically an introduction to a story before the story is told. If you've ever seen a movie, it may start off when some character was a child, and you may not like, what is happening here? I thought this was an action movie. I thought there was villains and killers here, but they start off a story about something that has seemingly nothing to do with what the actual movie is about. That's a prologue, and what they're trying to do in the prologue is introduce you for what is to come in the movie. It's typically a scene in a movie that can stand on its own if you didn't see the rest of the movie. Its purpose is to draw the audience in and get them ready for what is to come. And so John is trying to prepare us to tell us this story about grace, about the gospel of grace. But in order to tell the story, John does a prologue and he wants to get to the beginning before he gets into the meat of the story. And so this is what we see. And John begins his story of grace not not in real time but he goes back to the beginning like he goes all the way back to the beginning he goes so far back to the beginning he starts with God you can't go further back than God and this is where John starts his story and John starts his story with a very interesting word he says the word was there from the beginning in the beginning in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's talking about word, and that word there, you need to know this, comes from a Greek word called logos. 
It comes from a Greek word called logos. So, so in ancient philosophy, what would happen was these philosophers were searching for the meaning and purpose of life. They were looking for the meaning and the purpose of life. They were on a quest to find ultimate truth. They wanted to know what is life all about? What is all of the little things that happen in life? What is it really all about? What, what is the purpose and the meaning of life? And so they were out on this quest for truth. And so they wanted to define this quest for truth. They wanted to define this search for purpose and meaning in life. They wanted to define it. And so when they wanted to define it, they came up with a word for it. And the word to discover the meaning and purpose of life was logos. They came up with the word logos. And so when John is writing to his audience, God, John says, I want to speak the language of the day as a polemic of what they think the logos is, the meaning and the purpose of life is. I want to speak about the Logos, and so John then just copy and paste the word Logos as they meant it. John lets the Word of God, lets the Spirit of God transform it, and he says that the Logos and the Word was in the beginning. What you're searching for has always been, and matter of fact, you can actually know what it is. It's not some subjective truth that you're searching for, like like the rest of the culture is doing now. Everybody wants this subjective truth. Nothing is really truth. Nothing is really absolute. Nothing is factual. We're all on this quest for truth, and whatever we find out on on our own that is our own truth and John says no the logos the meaning and purpose in life has always been and it always will be what you discover will not be something new what you will discover it has always been around from the beginning and he says the logos always has been and the logos always will be however the logos that you think of it is not some impersonal subjective purpose uh, a meaning and purpose in life matter of fact the logos is not in person the logos is actually a person it's not impersonal. It is actually a person. And he says that person has been around since the beginning. The word has always been around. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so if you translate this, in the beginning was the meaning and purpose. And the purpose and meaning was with God. And the meaning and purpose was God. It, it was God. It's always been around from the beginning. And all the way up until verse 14, John has not directly identified who that person is. And he goes all the way back to the beginning where it was just God. Before there was anything, it was just God. It wasn't a big bang that came out of nowhere. In the beginning was God. You don't go back further than God. And this is where John says that the Logos began. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he writes, he makes this startling, uh, a startling assertion that Jesus is that Word. That that word, that impersonal thing you're searching for is actually found in a person. And that person has been around from the beginning. And that means if Jesus is the word, if he is the Logos, that means that Jesus' origins is not being born in a manger in Bethlehem. And so oftentimes we have this idea that Jesus just came on the scene in Bethlehem. And you know the nativity scenes. You drive around in the neighborhoods. You go look at the Christmas lights, and they have a little baby in the manger and the three wise men. Although the Bible said nothing about three wise men. Well, this is where Jesus all started. 
But I want you to know something. If you notice, the, if you are a Bible reader, if you notice the beginning of John's gospel, it is different from the other gospels. It is different from Matthew. It is different from Mark. It is different from Luke. If you look at his gospel, it is completely different. Matthew starts off with what? He, he starts off with Jesus' genealogy. He starts off with Jesus' family lineage. That's how Matthew starts off his gospel. When we get to Mark, Mark starts off with Isaiah's prophecy about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus. He he starts off with a prophecy of Isaiah that's talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. If we get to Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel starts off with a prediction about John's birth, and it also starts off with a prediction about the birth of Jesus. But John doesn't start off with anybody's birth. John starts off with, in the beginning was the word. John starts off with something completely different. John, matter of fact, had said at one point, he ranks ahead of me because he was before me. Now, how is that possible when John is the older cousin of Jesus? How is your older cousin before you? The only way your older cousin can be before you if your older cousin was around in the beginning. And this is what John is asserting in this message. John's gospel starts with a prologue that points us further back than a baby being born in a manger in Bethlehem. And if the word was in the beginning and Jesus is the word, that means that Jesus is eternal and Jesus has always been. And there has never been a time when Jesus did not exist. He has always been. He has always existed in perfect unity with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, one, one God and three persons. That's where we get the idea of the Trinity from, that Jesus didn't just come around on the scene in Matthew in your Bible. The good part didn't start in Matthew. The good part started in the beginning. And this is what John is asserting for us, that Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Jesus is as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit. He has always been. There has never been a time where Jesus was not. And John says... That he wasn't there in the heavens just sitting on the sidelines waiting for the father to put him in the game. Send me in the game, coach. I can't wait till you get to Matthew and I'm going to bust in that Bethlehem manger and I'm going to come out swinging. Oh, and those wise men show up. I'm going to start crying like a little baby and it's going to be great. No, no, that's not what John is implying. John is saying that, no, he didn't just start in the beginning in Matthew. He has always been, but when he always was, he wasn't just always was doing nothing, waiting for his turn. No, Jesus was doing something. He lets us know later on in John that all things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. So we don't just see John, uh, uh, Jesus is waiting to get in the game. We see Jesus working before there ever was. And what was the work that Jesus was doing? He was creating things. He was creating things. Verse 10 tells us the world was created through him. How myopic and truncated is our view of Jesus when we just think that he's the Savior, Johnny come lately, that just showed up in the manger in Bethlehem. But John is letting us know that, that, that this ain't no ordinary baby. This ain't no ordinary baby. And if you notice the beginning of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. That should sound familiar to you because if you go to page 1 in your Bible, what are the first few words? In the beginning, God. And John says, in the beginning was the word. 
I don't think John is doing that by accident. John is doing that on purpose because he's trying to let us know something. And what is the fifth word in the Bible? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. If John is making a parallel to Genesis chapter 1, then he's saying the same thing here. And so this idea that Jesus is not just Savior, but Jesus is creator, is not an unfamiliar idea to Scripture. It is actually consistent throughout the New Testament. Don't let me lose you. Stick with me. This is worth it. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, here's what it says. Paul wrote this, for everything was what? Created by him in the heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him he holds all things together. That's amazing about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is a bad dude, man. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus is God. John wants to make that abundantly clear to his audience. And if Jesus is the creator and he has brought forth life, then the revelation to all that I just said about Jesus being created is this. It merits a response. If Jesus is not just a Johnny-come-lately baby, if he is God from the beginning creator, that means something. That, that means that it merits a response from people who come to know this. That if he is the creator, that changes everything. If he is the creator of all things, all things would include me. That merits a response that maybe he knows something about me that I don't. Because what you decide about Jesus is critical to how you will live today and where you will spend eternity tomorrow. Let me say that again. What you decide about Jesus is crucial to how you live today and where you will spend eternity on tomorrow. And if he is holding all things together, that means all things in the universe, every particle, proton, neutron, electron, every atom, Christ has created it and he's sustaining it all by the power of his word. That's good news to you. That should make you feel something on the inside of your heart. If he's holding every single particle, electron, neutron, atom, and everything else all together by the power of his word, he can surely hold your life together. If he can keep all of that together with none of it falling apart, he can keep your life together. He can keep your life together. If he is holding all things together, I'll take it further. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your life. Where you eat, where you sleep, where you work, what you will do tomorrow. He has it all under control in his hands. He's sustaining you by the power of his word because he is creator God. But if he's your creator, that also means that he knows what you need. Oh, my God, if he created you, he knows what you need. He put the pieces of the puzzle together. If your hair is the way your hair is, he knows how to fix your hair. 
He can fix your entire life. He knows what you need. But the only way to know that is to know him. He is the Logos, the one that gives life meaning and purpose. But why do we go everywhere else looking for only what he can provide? He created us, but we go everywhere else in search for love, acceptance, identity, truth, meaning, and purpose to life. We look for all of these things in the culture as opposed to in the creator. I liken it to having a car and taking it to the dealership, the manufacturer, Verse taking it to a shade tree mechanic. Some of you haven't been driving that long. But if you ever had a cheap car and you've been low on money, or you had an expensive car and you was balling beyond your means, and you got to make a decision, do I take it to the dealership or do I take it to Rollo? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The hookup. Do I take it to the dealership or do I take it to the dude that wears the overall outfit, has a little grease on his pocket, smokes a cigarette, and is always packing his, packing his pockets looking for a lighter? And everything that's wrong with your car, even if it's the oil, it says, no, nah, I never had a carburetor, fluid rated, never got a carburetor, the oil engine just, no, nah, I just got a little carburetor. Do something with the alternator carburetor in your car. And inevitably, if you, if you skip on it, you don't take it to the dealership, you go to a, a shade tree mechanic trying to save some money, guess what ends up happening a few days later? You got to take it right back. They can never quite fix it the way that it needs to be fixed because they don't know what they're doing. But that's what we do to our lives. We go to the shade tree mechanic, which is the culture, as opposed to going to the creator, which is the manufacturer and the dealership that made you perfect in all your ways. He made you the way you intended to be. He made you in his own perfection, not saying you are perfect, but he is in the way that he shaped you and formed you. So why go there when you can go to him? This is what we do with our lives. Because God is creator, we treat him like he's far removed and unrelatable. But the truth is, is that our God is personal and we can have a true relationship with him. You need to know this, that yes, he is creator of all things and he holds the universe together. But he's not so far removed that you can't have a relationship with him. And so at the outset, I said John 14 is one of the most shocking statements in scripture because he says this word, this logos that has been since the beginning, the creator of all things, this word has become flesh. And dwelt among us. The word has become flesh, meaning he has become truly human. That changes everything. That he's not just up there. He has come down. God has come in human form. He is fully God and fully human at the same time. This idea of Jesus is being fully human and fully God is what we call the incarnation. Don't go to sleep on me. Don't be scared because I use the word incarnation. Don't get afraid. Don't be like, uh-oh, I'm in the deep end. That's okay. You got a life jacket. The incarnation is simply this. In Christ, God added to himself our humanity while continuing to be God at the same time. Let me say that again. In Christ, here's what the incarnation is. 
Simple definition. The incarnation for dummies, not calling you a dummy, but you know the four dummies book that explains hard things and makes them simple for us. The incarnation for dummies is this. In Christ, God added to himself our humanity while continuing to be God at the same time. He's fully human and fully God at the same time. He has donned our humanity with the exception of our sin nature. That this is good news. This is good news for us because he took on everything that is inherent to our true humanity without surrendering any of his deity, yet he is no less human than you and I are. And what does that mean for me? That means he feels all the sorrows and joys that you feel too. That as a man, he was subject to pain, pleasure, hunger, thirst, fatigue, disappointment, ultimately suffering, and then death. He fought like a man. He reasoned as a man. He felt as a man. That's why the writer Hebrew says, in all points, tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. This is good news because the one who made you is also the one who can feel you. This is good news. This, this is so profound. This is so good for us that our God is not distant. Our God is not unrelatable. He is a God that knows exactly how you feel at your worst and at your best. This is who Jesus is. And we care about this because it is only in his flesh that he shares in our humanity that we can be saved. That's the only way. I, I love this quote by Michael Spencer. He wrote this about the incarnation. Here's what Michael Spencer had to say. He said this, without the incarnation, Christianity isn't, isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Be nice to one another is not a message that can give my life meaning. Assure me of love beyond my brokenness and break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope. The incarnation does that because the incarnation is an essential part of Jesus-shaped spirituality the incarnation is so important to us because if he didn't come he couldn't stand in our place he came to not just show us how to live but he came to die for us the word has become flesh and dwelt among us one of my favorite theologians rc Sproul, summed it up when he said what we celebrate at christmas is not so much the birth of a baby but the incarnation of god himself this is so profound the word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt. He tabernacled. He tented with us. He was with us. He, he tabernacled. When he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observe his glory, he's looking back to the book of Exodus when Moses and the children of Israel were in pursuit of God's presence, when God's presence was with them. The, the, the presence of God was with the people of God because of the pillar of God. God came in the day and came in the night, and his presence was always there, and they were able to see the presence of God from a distance. But at one point in time, after God gave uh, Israel the law, Israel disobeyed God and sinned against God, and God did what we do when people make us mad. He put some space between them and the people. He, he separated himself a little bit. He, his presence was still at a distance, but he wasn't as near as he was at one point because of their sin. Their sin actually kind of turned God away. And so at this point, God says, you know what? In my grace and in my mercy, I'm not going to kill you because you violated me. But what I am going to do is I'm going to allow you to come to me, but you got to go through a mediator, and that mediator is Moses. And so whenever the people wanted to consult with God, they had to go to Moses. And what Moses would do, because he still had access to God, Moses would go to what's called the 
tent of meeting. This is where God tabernacled with them. This is where God's spirit came down and his presence was with them. And so Moses, whenever they had a, requ a request, Moses would then walk outside of the camp. The people would stand up at the tent of their camp. They're out in the wilderness, guys. And so Moses would walk to the tent of meeting where, God's, where God would meet with Moses. And Moses would walk there. The people would stand up. Moses would go into the tent and then the glory and the presence of God will come down on the tent and the people would see it from a distance and they would just fall down and worship. God, by his mercy, although they had sinned against him, he still came down. He still came down. They didn't deserve it, but he still came down to them. And what we're saying is this. God has dwelt among them. He has tabernacled among them, meaning that if he did that with Moses, now we actually can worship God with our mediator, which is Christ Jesus. Although we sin, we still have access to God through Jesus, our mediator. And this is what he's saying. He has tabernacled with us. He has come even though we don't deserve for him to come to us. So he says we, he tabernacled with us. And we observed his glory, the glory of God. You've heard the word Shekinah, or the actual terminology, Shekinah, which is the glory of God. And the glory of God is just simply God's goodness. It is his goodness. We observed his glory. And John is speaking for himself in all of those who had a chance to witness and be with Jesus. John is writing this years later as an older man. He says, uh, we observed his glory. We observed the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. John walked uh, with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He spent time with him. He had a chance to observe Jesus and see what he was about. And his glory was like nothing they had ever seen. Jesus was just different. Jesus was different. He was like no other man because he had no sin in him. He was utterly different. He was the personification and the human embodiment of the glory of God. He, he was all the things that God's glory is was found in Jesus. And John says he had the glory of the one and only son of the father, meaning his glory was the kind of glory that only a son could have from his father. Jesus was different. His goodness, his glory, his majesty, his splendor, his holiness. And oftentimes, when you saw glory in the Old Testament, glory wasn't just some theoretical, wasn't some just presence, but, but, but you could actually see the glory. It was this physical aspect to the glory of God. And John says, we beheld that in Jesus. We observed his glory. But he observes it in this term. In these terms, he says this, we observed his glory as the one and only son from the father. And if he had to sum up the glory of God, he said he was full of grace and truth. What does that mean? It means this, that he was full of loving kindness, merciful loving kindness and faithfulness. When he described what Jesus was like, who was the embodiment of the glory of God, he said it was merciful, loving kindness and faithfulness. This is what he uses to describe God. Merciful, loving kindness and faithfulness. Dane Ortland, one of my favorite authors, suggests in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that if we could pick one passage from the Old Testament to answer the question, who is God? Who, who, who is God? It would be hard to improve upon the passage in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Let's look at Exodus 34 and 6. Here's what uh, Moses writes to describe uh, the way 
the glory of God was. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he says, John says this, that Jesus is the embodiment of merciful, loving kindness and graciousness. If there is words to describe God, it will be merciful, loving kindness and faithfulness, meaning this, God loves me more than I should be loved and his faithfulness is more than I could be ever faithful to him. And this is who Jesus is. And here's how Dane Ortland describes it in his book, Gentle and Lowly, about this passage. It is God's own way of saying, there is no determined, no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. That's how God feels about you. If you're in him, you can't outrun his mercy. That's insane. Do you think and you look over your life, do you actually deserve for somebody to love you like this? But this is how God feels about you. You can't evade God's goodness if you wanted to. And how much are we all longing for and looking for that type of love and commitment? How much do we search for it in our careers, in our families, in our failed attempts to get it from other humans and what do we find out? It always leaves us wanting. And here's God saying, you aren't crazy for looking for that type of love and commitment. Your emotions aren't playing tricks on you for wanting that type of commitment. You just keep hoping for it in places that was never intended to give it to you in the first place. So here I am. Everything that you're looking for. The mercy that never runs out. The commitment that is always faithful is always coming from me. And when I read this quote, I was like, oh, my God. How lost are we when we do all of this searching out there for things outside of us when God is saying, I'm all that you need? Because if you look for this type of love and commitment from a person, it will always fail you. Because humans are not capable of loving the way that God loves. This is why he must be our first and foremost priority. This is why he must be central to who we are as a people. Who wouldn't want to live for a person that loves them like this? How many of us are faithful to our friends, our families, uh, people we've been in relationships with? How much more are we faithful to people who are not that faithful to us? But God is that faithful to us, but yet we're not that faithful to him. And this is what it means when he says, I'm merciful in love and kindness. Nobody will ever love you like me. No, ever, no one will ever be as faithful to you as I am. And here's why. They didn't create you. I did. Because if anybody's ever met you and they've been around you for longer than five minutes, they would recreate you into something else. They would make you in their image, not mine. But I made you the way that you are. I set my affections on you. I beat you to the punch. Nobody can love you like me. If you need forgiveness, 
I'm the only person that can truly give it to you. If you're looking for peace, only comes from me. If you're looking for joy, it's found in me. If you're looking for somebody to mend your broken heart, it's only found in me. If you're looking for somebody to be patient with you, people don't have the patience of a flea. I do. And this is what he's compelling us to come to. And my question to us this morning, why would we want to be madly in love with him the way he is with us? He is the full embodiment. Jesus is the full embodiment of the grace and the mercy of God. And here's what verse 16 says. And we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Grace upon grace, meaning that his grace never runs out, that his grace is his love coming to save sinners and dwelling with them. God is always with us. He's always providing grace. His grace is endless. It's never running out. It is an endless supply. If you want access to it, you can have it. Surrender everything in your life and latch on to the sun and you can have all of the grace that you need. Everything that I am is found in Jesus. This is what he's saying. I love the way that um, Paul writes it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He said this, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. All the fullness of God is in Jesus. Everything that God is, is in Jesus. It's founded in him. So he gives us this opportunity to know him through his son, to know what God is like and what God intends for us. We need to look no further than the son. And here's what it says in verse 18, and I'm done. Verse 18 says this, no one has ever seen God. And I want to pause right there. If we look back over scripture, every time someone in the Old Testament even caught a small glimpse of God, it was an overwhelming experience of them. Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. And if you're familiar with the story, God says, I can't show you who I am. You can't see my face and still live. So God says, turn, turn, turn your head. Let me cover up your eyes. I'll show you my back. He saw the back of God, and it was too much for him. Isaiah is in the temple in, in Isaiah chapter 6, and he has this overwhelming experience with the presence of God. The, the, the train filled the temple, and Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man undone. I don't even deserve to be. I can't stand it anymore. All he could do was fall down and worship. It was too much. The glory of God was too much for them. They couldn't handle the glory of God. When Moses came down from talking to Jesus on, on Mount Sinai, he came down and his face had glory. He had to put a veil on his face because the people couldn't stand to look at him because he had been with God and been around the glory of God. It's too much. So no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen him before. And then God says, enough is enough. I'm sending my son. And the son reveals everything that God is. And if you want to see God, you, all you got to do is look at Jesus. You ever saw somebody... And they look just like their mama or their daddy. You like, you is you. They look just like, like it literally looks no different. But for every person that you've ever seen that looks just like their parent, Jesus looks that much more like the father. Everything that God is, Jesus reveals to us. Colossians 1.15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. And so here's what has happened. The incarnation of the Son has made it possible for humanity to have seen God. But not only can we see God, the Son has also broken the barrier that made it possible 
but thus to have a relationship with God. Through his sufferings, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, we can be reconciled to God. It's one thing to see a celebrity from a distance. And maybe you take a picture with a celebrity, and you post it on social media, and you pretend like hanging out with The Rock. <laughs> okay. Hanging out with Will Smith. You've seen them, but you don't have a relationship with them. Jesus was the creator of the world, and it tells us in John chapter 1, it tells us this. He created the world. He went to his own people, and his people didn't receive him. They saw him physically, but still rejected him. It is possible to see God or be around him and still not receive him. So when Jesus comes and finishes his work, he's not just coming to show us what he looks like. Him showing us what he looks like should be enough to convince us that we actually need him. But Jesus says, I don't just want to show you what he looks like. I want to put you in a relationship with him. And this is what happens because Jesus, because the word has been made flesh and dwelt among us. It gave us an opportunity not just to see God, but to be in a relationship with him. And so Advent season is not just looking back, it, although it is, but it's also an expectation of what is to come. And the way we know him now in a relationship with him through Jesus, it pales into comparison for when he comes back. But when he's coming back to reveal to us be far more than anything we could ever imagine. Everything that we deal with now, all of the goodness that we may have in our relationship with God is only a glimpse of the glory that is coming when he returns to come back to make everything right and to make all things new. And so this morning, I, I hope that to see how the creator has come to a people who don't deserve him and has showered his grace upon them. An endless amount of grace should compel them to not just be satisfied with seeing him, but with desire relationship with him. And so if he has created us, and he has been around from the beginning, and he has grace upon grace, then that grace merits a response. And so today... We all have a decision to make. What is our response to a God who says you can't outrun my mercy and that there is no termination date on my commitment to you? That is utterly ridiculous. I tell you what the right response is. The right response is to surrender our lives to him, to repent of our sins and put our trust in him. Because he's offered us grace upon grace. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship.